Hi, my name is Alan, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm glad that Cindy and Mick learned their last names while I've been here. And I'm going to tell you how I learned mine. My sponsor died six months and 14 days ago. His name is Frank. And uh, he told me to use my last name. And I said, not me, I've got anonymity. And God works in mysterious ways because the very next week, I said, Frank, you know Doug that goes to St. Anne's with us on Thursday night? He said, I can't quite place him, Alan. Doug who? I said, you know, Doug, he's in the hospital, he's got cancer, and I thought maybe he'd go with me to visit him. He said, I can't place him. I said, well, Frank, he's around my age, he's got a mustache, and he's a little taller than me. He said, Alan, why don't you call information and tell him you want Doug's phone number, he's around your age, <laughs> he's got a mustache, and he's a little taller than you. My name became Rosencrantz the next meeting. And then I learned the real purpose of using my last name. Dr. Bob in 1950 said, when the Responsibility Act, when anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want this program to be there, and for that I am responsible. Now, AA is not responsible. My sponsor is not responsible. My home group is not responsible. And you are not responsible. I am responsible. So I make sure everywhere I go... Thank you. I make sure everywhere I go, everyone knows I'm in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I try to be the best example of Alcoholics Anonymous that I can be, and that helps me be a better example. Nobody wants to see a bad book, big book walking around. They just don't want to see it. And I, and I was thinking, you know, when Cindy called me, Bill called me first, but I remembered Cindy. I connected with her right away. When Diane and I got off that plane, I spotted Cindy from 100 feet away, and I've never seen her before. <laughs> Never seen her before. And I knew exactly who she was. You people, I a friend of mine that took me to the airport, took us to the airport, told me when you get to Kentucky, he said, you are going to, and I'm, this is no BS, he said, you are going to meet the friendliest people that you've ever met in your life. And I want to tell you that coming where I, where I come from are the most unfriendliest people that you'll ever meet. <laughs> people don't say hello to their next door neighbor in California. In fact, we're very rude. And it's something that I don't like because I talk to my neighbors. And it was really comfortable getting here and meeting you guys. It was just a very pleasant, nice thing. You know, I've been very, very sick the last couple of three years. I've almost died four times. And uh, if it hadn't been for Cindy, I probably would have played sick and stayed home. And, and I didn't. And, you know, and I'm going to talk about something else, too, because I find a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous that get sober, and the first thing they do is go out and meet her or him. Now, first of all, I guess I better tell you who my sponsor is. My sponsor is Polly Pistol, and she's also got a last name. She was my Eskimo. And when my sponsor, Frank Cunningham, died six months and 14 days ago, I sponsor about 50 guys. And they all called, not all of them, but most of them called me and said, Alan, do you have a sponsor yet? Because we were told that you always got a sponsor that's got a sponsor that's got a sponsor. And I didn't know what to do, so I called Polly right away, because Polly's known me since my first five minutes. Polly is my Eskimo. I was an atheist when I got here. And Polly, God came into my life through Polly Pistol. And so I asked Polly to be my sponsor, and she lives in Birch, Washington, and I call her every day. And the reason I call my sponsor every day is because I have a disease of perception. My perception of my reality is distorted. And if my perception of my reality is distorted... My solution, every problem in my life is also distorted. When I take my own advice, I take the advice of a fool. I don't take the advice of a fool today. But I got guys that I sponsor that call me up once a week or twice a week to ask me how I'm feeling. I call my sponsor every day to ask her what I should do. I don't ask her how she's feeling. She's got a sponsor for that. And uh that's the way that deal goes. Now, remember when I first got to Alcox and I was... Polly picked me apart right away. Did you see, when I got here, I was a drug dealer and a pimp. I took your wife, I got her hooked on drugs, and I put her in the street. And my daughter got to grow up watching that. And so Polly, I don't know how she spotted this whole thing, but she said, Alan, I want you to stay away from women for a year. Did you see, I slept with everything I could get my hands on. My wife, your wife, his wife, their wife. I didn't care who it was. And I spent my life doing that. You'll learn in a little while why. And so I said, okay. And then she got to know me a little better. She said, Alan, for you, five years. <laughs> she wasn't joking. 
That's the problem. If she wasn't joking, she had no idea what she was doing to me. But I had become very willing, you see. And it wasn't to get sober. My alternative was 25 years in Nevada State Penitentiary. And so I was very, very willing. And then she said, honey, most people I tell to get laid, she said, you're not one of them. She said, you've had all the casual sex you need for the rest of your life. At five years of sobriety, she said, Alan, it's okay for you to casually date now. I listened to that woman. I did everything she told me to do. And I said, what does casually date mean, Polly? She said, it means like dating your daughter. <laughs> and that's what I did. And I met this one. She said, the only time that sex is going to enter your life from now on is if you're going to get married. And I met a girl from South Carolina. I know your accent. It's awesome. I love it. And I met this girl from South Carolina, and one of us fell in love, and the other one didn't. I fell in love. She didn't. And uh, when it came time, and she, but she's, and I guess in the beginning, maybe she did. And uh, and then it changed. It wasn't what she wanted. And she, I had eight and a half years, and she had eight and a half days. <laughs> My sponsor told me to stay away from her. He didn't say the old timer was going to get drunk. She said, that woman will never get sober until you leave her alone. I said, you don't understand, Frank. This is different. I'm in love. He said, you don't even know the meaning of the word. And you see, I didn't leave her alone. She's not sober today. And I don't take responsibility for today, but I sure do take responsibility for that first year or so. I have never done that since. Ever. But you see, it's a funny thing because of my background with women. When it came time for us to have some sex, I was infinite. And I went running to Polly and said, Polly. She said, Alan, you're sober. Go talk to Dave. He was too for nine months. And then about three years later, I got involved in my only, I've only been involved in two relationships. And Polly wanted to make sure the second one was okay, so she had me do an inventory on my mother. And she said, Alan, while you're doing an inventory on your mother, you do one on Debbie too. And I did one on both of them. And Debbie abused me the same way my mother did. And you don't have sex with your mother. And that was the deal. And I was okay after that. A very smart woman. All of my problems have been solved in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. There's a guy in California by the name of Clancy that says therapy is better left for normal people. And I believe that. Unless you have an outside issue. Now, I went to therapy for in the beginning of my sobriety for an outside issue. I did not go there to learn how to do Alcoholics Anonymous. I went there because Polly said, your MO doesn't match your personality. And you see, I ran with every woman I could get my hands on. She said, it doesn't fit. Will you go to therapy? And I went to therapy. And after about a half a dozen sessions of therapy, Marianne, I'll never forget her, said, Alan, your MO doesn't match your personality. Would you consider being hypnotized? I said, whatever you want me to do. I didn't want to go to prison, remember. I didn't care about the sobriety of that, just prison. And in hypnotherapy, it came out that I was molested by a woman at three and a half and violently and repeatedly raped by a man when I was eight. And from that point on, as soon as I grew up, I went to bed with every woman I could get my hands on to prove I was normal. I think it's important that you know that I have never found it necessary to be promiscuous from the day that I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Polly told me, Alan, she said, all you have to do here in Alcoholics Anonymous is stop drinking and change every single solitary thing about yourself. In about three months into sobriety, she said, honey, what is it about the word everything you don't seem to understand? (laughs) And uh, I went about the process of trying to change everything. I don't use profanity today. Husbands trust me implicitly with their wives today. Parents trust me implicitly with their children today. And that has nothing to do with me. I would take credit for one second of that. That blame belongs to you. Because you people changed me. People just like you, in a place just like this, changed my entire life around. You gave me a daughter back at four months of sobriety. And that's a funny thing, because when she called me up, and some of you heard her talking yesterday, and she talked about how she called me and said, okay, Dad, come get me. I was in that van on my way to Santa Barbara within 10 seconds. I couldn't wait to go get her back. I've had her since she was two weeks old. She doesn't remember she was too young. It wasn't a year, six months. It was two weeks. And that little girl is the love of my life. 
Absolutely the love of my life. How she came out and turned out to be the woman she is from the way that I raised her the first half of her life is an absolute miracle of God. And I believe that her and I today are a, she's a recovering bulimic and I'm a recovering alcoholic. And I believe that my sobriety is an unconditional gift of love from God as is her life. I believe from the bottom of my heart that if I had received what I worked for, what I earned, and what I deserved, I'd either be dead, insane, or in prison. And I believe that from the bottom of my heart. And I don't know why God chose to keep me out of prison, because when I got here, it was a mess. I came out of Clark County Jail in Las Vegas, Nevada, with a half a dozen felonies against me. And I didn't have too much hope of staying out of prison. And I'll get to that later. I'm going to have to go back to the beginning of my story and let you know what's going on from the beginning. I was born into an obscenely wealthy family. They had more money than I could ever possibly dream of believing in in my life. And, uh, I, you know, I was molested at three and a half and raped at eight. And uh, at ten years of age, my father deserted us. And I don't know why it is. My brother and I talk about it today. But every single person in both families deserted us. And we went from obscenely wealthy to flat broke. And we literally moved from east to, from West L.A. to East L.A. And I grew up in the gangs, in the knife fights and the gun fights and the lead pipe fights. I've got a hole in my head that deep and that long from a lead pipe. And I didn't like it then. Today I look back on it in retrospect. That probably saved my life because bullets were flying everywhere. And knives were going everywhere, and I didn't get killed. One more time, God found it necessary to keep me here for some reason, and I don't, still don't know what that reason is. I guess it was to get an AA. But that thing went on when I was very young, and that was a real mess. And uh, I grew up in that, and I have a sixth-grade education. I had to go to work at 10 to support my mother, and my brother went to work at 7 and a half, and I helped get him through college. And uh, excuse me, i got to move this thing up a little further. I really planned on having that leg on today. I've got a prosthesis. The problem is, is when I first put it on, I played too much golf and did too much dancing. And when I got a little sore, I didn't listen to the doctor. I knew better than the doctor. And I've been in a wheelchair for seven months because I knew better than the doctor. If I'd listened to the doctor, I'd be walking today. If you're new, you might want to listen to that. Anyways, I grew up in that family, and we got to East L.A., and it was fights and no schooling and going to work to support my mother and my brother the same thing. And my brother was a much better athlete than me. We were all good athletes in our family. And uh, I've never talked about sports before, but my daughter was an All-American swimmer, and my brother was an All-American football player at UCLA, and I was the eighth-ranking tennis player in the country. And my son was an All-American baseball player at Long Beach State. Everybody was an athlete in our family. So when this happened to me, you can imagine I didn't like it. I had a horrible resentment. I said, look at that fat pig next to me. Why doesn't God give, take his leg? He doesn't even need it. I need it. I don't have that attitude today. But that was the first thing that entered my mind, honestly, when it happened. And I don't like the way I felt. I don't like my behavior over that. And I bitched about that a little bit, and I don't like that. I had to make amends in an open meeting of Alcox Anonymous for that behavior. My sponsor taught me that not only do we make an amends and do a tense step with the person that we've harmed, we also do it in an open meeting of Alcox Anonymous. He said, you'll find many people that suggest that. I'm not suggesting, I'm telling you. He said, and there's a reason for that. Number one, it's going to set you completely free. You won't have to wonder who's going to find out what about you. Number two, it's going to become a deterrent against your exercising that kind of behavior again. And number three, it's going to help that poor soul sitting in the back room doing the same thing that's going to go out and drink because he doesn't hear that in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. See, so I do everything in an open meeting. That stuff she talked about with the credit cards, that's out in an open meeting. Everything I've done wrong is out in an open meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that wasn't the way it was when I first got here, because my life was one big secret. I couldn't let you know anything about me. My God, what would you think of me? 
I was so concerned about what you thought of me that I was hiding everything. And so I'm going to get to my last drunk, and then I'm going to get into the into recovery, because recovery was much more important to me than my drinking career. I don't think there's anybody in this room that's an alcoholic that doesn't know how to drink. You don't need me to teach you how to drink. But my last drunk was bad, and my last drunk lasted for 10 years. And that little kid grew up in that last drunk. And what happened was, I remember saying that I would never allow my children to grow up the way that I grew up. That they would never do without. And there would always be lots of money. And there would always be a nice house. And there would always be good schools. And they would get an education. And they would be dressed well and do anything they wanted to do. And I went out and I got into real estate and I became an apartment developer. And I became the third largest apartment developer in the country. And I became a multi-millionaire. It's important that you know that. My sponsor told me that. And you'll know why in a little bit. And my children, guess what? Grew up exactly the way I grew up. My father ran with his feet. And I ran in the bottle. Neither one of us took care of our children. We just weren't there for them. My body was there, but that's all that was there. When my daughter shared how she could get away with murder, she could. You should have seen her when I first got sober and she came back. When she called me and said, Dad, come get me. She knew what she was doing. She could get away with murder with me. There was no discipline. There was no anything. And she and I picked her up and brought her back. And for a while, out of my guilt, she did. And then I started becoming a father as you people raised me in AA. And pretty soon I didn't let her do this and let her do I said, Diane, here's the deal. You're going to live by some rules in this house. And if you don't live by the rules in this house, you're going to have to leave the house. She said, "There's what's going on here? That's not the father I know. The father I know is having a few drinks and not paying any attention to what I'm doing. But today I've learned by you people to learn what I'm doing in raising a child. Anyways, when I I'm get back to that last drunk, so I uh, that business went. It went the same way that everything else in my life went. You see, if it was successful, it was no good. I drank. And if it was unsuccessful, it was no good, and I drank. And if it was in between, I drank. Didn't matter what it was, I drank. And I drank to where I drank myself into the gutter. And you'll learn about that in just a minute. What happened was I'm drinking, and I'm uh, getting my life's becoming a mess, and I lose the business. My brother's screaming at me for uh, drinking and not paying attention to the business, and I got sick of listening to him, so I gave him the business. And my wife was screaming about all my drinking and how she couldn't stand it anymore, and that she wanted a divorce. I said, you got one. She said, I'm going to get an attorney. I said, why? She said, I want this, and I want that, and I want this. I said, you don't need an attorney. She said, no. I said, I'm going to give you everything. She said, what do you want? I said, don't call me. What an ego. What an absolute ego. What I did is hurt that little girl with my big fat ego. Now, we walked out of there with a quarter. Just enough to maybe make a phone call. And that's who got hurt because of my big fat ego was her, not me, her. I didn't have the right to do that. But you see, my ego didn't know that then. I lived my life by my ego. I got here with an ego. A horrible way to live. Anyways, uh, all that went. I had a friend in Las Vegas and he was in telemarketing and he was doing well and he used to work for me and he called me and said, come to Las Vegas and we got in this old dilapidated car and we drove to Las Vegas in it and I, I had a trailer with what we owned behind it and they put that in storage and we stayed at his house for a week or so and then got a place to live and I went to work in telemarketing and it was legitimate telemarketing. It wasn't what you read about or hear about in the you know, on TV where people are scamming people out of their money. It was legitimate. And I, and I made a good living. But you see, I couldn't make it there either. Just couldn't handle that. And so, uh, you know, that job went too. I got to go backwards a minute. I forgot about a major part of my drinking career. I, at 17 and a half, I had a girlfriend. Imagine that. I didn't couldn't get it together with any girlfriend, any wife or any girlfriend. I used to blame all of them for what happened to me until I figured out in sobriety that I was the common denominator in every one of those relationships. And that included the one when I was 17 or 18 years old. So I had this girlfriend, and you know she broke up with me. 
And I had to make my first geographical. I joined the Navy. But you see, to join the Navy, you had to have a high school degree. Now, I know today that you go to school to get a high school degree, and I don't know what they cost in Tijuana today, but back when I bought my high school degree, they cost $10. And I bought my high school degree in Tijuana, and I came back to L.A., and my buddies piled me in the car, and we were on the way to Union Depot, and they said, what do you think you're going to be when you're in the Navy? I said, an admiral. (laughs) I knew what I was going to be. I was going to be an admiral. There's nothing grandiose about that, is there? So, you know, I joined the Navy to become an admiral, and I got in a fight with this guy. He was a, uh, an operations officer. He was in charge of the base I was on, and uh, half a ship's company was going on leave for Christmas, and the other half for New Year's. My name wasn't on either leave list. So I went to him. His name was Ensign Howell. I'll never forget him. That short, blonde hair and that pudgy look, and I wanted to kill him. And uh, he said, you're not going, and I hit him in the throat. And that was my answer to everything. I caught him in the throat and was pounding his head in the cement deck. And I got a captain's mask for it. And somehow I didn't get a brig to deal. And I, I got 90 days restriction on the base. You know, 90 days restriction at 18 years of age for a drunk like me doesn't work. So I'm going over that fence every night to Tijuana. And I don't have any money. So I'm promising this Mexican girl that's a bartender in Tijuana, honey, all you got to do is sleep with me and give me booze, and I'm going to marry you and get you out of this, bring you back to the United States. She slept with me, she gave me booze, and I didn't marry her. And that's a continuation of the story of my life. And uh, I got back to that base, and they caught me coming over the hill one night because I used to sneak out of there. And now I got a summary court-martial. And that's the least of the court marshals. And I got three months in the brig. And it was a, it was a red line brig, a marine brig and a red line brig. It wasn't like today when mommy called the congressman. There was nothing like that back then. Mommy did not call the congressman. And, uh, this one brig guard, you stand spread eagle and he taps you on the butt after he searches you for silverware and off you go. He used to kick me in the tailbone. And after I couldn't take that pain anymore, a couple of weeks later, I said, we called him Tennessee. I said, Tennessee, sir, permission to talk to you off the record, sir. He said, permission granted. I said, you jarhead, the next time you kick me in the tailbone, you're going to be a dead jarhead. He kicked me in the tailbone, and I caught him in the throat in another place. And I was pounding his head on the cement deck, and they dragged me off of him. They took me in the shower room. They beat me to a pulp, and they put me in a hole where you couldn't stand up and you couldn't sit down. And I got bread and water for a week or a week and a half. And then back in the naval hospital with malnutrition for a month. And then three more months in that brig with that same jarhead. I waited outside the gate for him when I got my bad conduct discharge. He never came out. But I heard later that he ended up in Tijuana over the hill. And a lot of guys got him. And I can't, today I'm not happy about it. Then I was delighted. And I forgot about that phase of my life. And so I'm going to get back to where I'm in my last trunk now. And I get to Las Vegas and the telemarketing job's not working. And uh, things aren't going good. And my daughter's running around, like she said, and I thought she was perfect. I had no idea she was lying at all. My daughter did not lie. She did, but I didn't know it. And the things she was doing that I knew nothing about, because I was drinking the whole time. And then finally... I don't know what happened, but it didn't work, and I finally couldn't make a living, and I became a pimp. And these women are parading back and forth in and out of that apartment house that that kid is living in. And she's getting to visualize all this and look at all this, and that's how she grew up. I'm happy to say that I am sober over half her life now, and it's entirely different today. Today she's the daughter I've always wanted, and I'm the father she's always wanted. And that took a lot of hard work, her being an Al-Anon and me being an Alcox Anonymous. But that's not how it was then. And then finally, you know, you heard this from her yesterday. There I am with all this going on. And my brother came by and I need some money because I got to go get loaded and uh, tell him I got to pay a bill. And uh, so they sat there and I said, I'll be right back. I didn't come right back. And she left with my brother and went to San Diego and lived with them for a year. And I hated every second of that, and I thought they were trying to steal her from me, and I got very angry with them. I still held the grudge. It's taken me a long time to let go of that. Those are some circumstances in my family that today don't fit. Just don't fit. 
I wasn't quite as bad as they made me out to be, and they weren't quite as good as she made them out to be. It wasn't just all black and white in that situation with my brother and his family, but it worked out the best it could. And today, my brother and I are good friends. And that took a lot of hard work, too. So that thing came out, and that was my uh, getting to my last drunk, and I've got these girls in the apartment, I've got all these drugs in the apartment, and this policeman comes by, they finally found me, and they came by to arrest me. And this is the last, getting near my last, part of my last drunk. And I, you know, I told you about that thing in the, with the Nate, with the Marine Brig, and, uh, and spending six months in that place, and I was absolutely petrified of being there. Nothing scared me more than going to prison. So when these cops came by to arrest me, I threw the cop off a two-story balcony. And I ran the streets. And I slept in your dumpster, inside your dumpster, eating your garbage. And I climbed out of that dumpster to go into the supermarket and unscrew the cap off a bottle of wine, stick a straw in it, suck it out, hoped you didn't catch me, and got back to the dumpster again. And that's how I lived for a year and a half. And that wasn't much fun, but it was better than going to prison. And you know what happened. I got caught in the supermarket one day, and I ended up in Clark County Jail, and I called my brother to bail me out of jail. I had a half a dozen felonies against me. I knew things weren't looking good. I knew I was head of the penitentiary for a long time. They found like over 30 kilos of cocaine and a half a dozen of those women that I turned into hookers running around that place. So I knew I was going away for a long time, and I called my brother to bail me out of jail. He said, you know, Alan, you have a really bad drinking problem. Imagine saying something like that to me. He said, if I bail you out of jail, will you go into a hospital and go to Alcoholics Anonymous? Now, newcomers had to have a lot of arrogance, and I had much more than most of them. And I said, look, you jerk, I don't have a drinking problem. I've got a being in jail problem. I said, are you going to get me out of here or aren't you? Now, I don't know where my brother got his Alan on program from, but I can tell you that it was working really good that day, and he's never been to Alan on. He said, you can rot in jail for the rest of your life, and don't you ever call me again. I said, hold it. I'll go wherever you want me to. <laughs> and he bailed me out of jail. And he locked me up in this vacant apartment. He had guards outside the door so I couldn't get out. And I detoxed for seven, eight, or nine days, and you could smell me a block away because I'd come off the streets. And it was bad. And I detoxed off drugs and alcohol. And seven, eight, or nine days later... I detoxed off this stuff, and they showered me, and they shaved me, and they cut my hair off with a bowl, and they gave me, put clean clothes on me, and they said, we're going to put you on a plane, and you're going to go to Southern California, where your brother's going to pick you up and put you in a hospital. Well, you see, I had about nine or ten days of sobriety. I usually forget about this part, and I'm not going to today. And my ego had recovered. Imagine my ego recovering at 10 days. I said, do you think you could ask my brother if I could lay out in the sun and get a little tan before I get on the plane? <laughs> Imagine something like that coming out of my mouth. They said no. They declined. They put me on that plane, and I got off that plane in Orange County, and Diane and my brother picked me up at the airport, and they said, my dad's daughter said something, my dad, you don't look too bad. I said, thank you. And they said, would you like lunch? And I said, sure. And I couldn't hold lunch down nine days later. And they took me to what I call Poly Pistols Hospital. And it was a treatment center. But all Polly pushed was Alcoholics Anonymous. You didn't get much treatment center of Polly, and she quit it shortly thereafter. She just believed in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I got to that treatment center, and they took me to my first AA meeting the next day. It was down on the beach, and there were around 200 people there. And I looked around the beach at those people, just like I'm looking at you right now. Only right now, when I look at you, I'm looking with love and respect. And when I looked at those people on that beach, I said, my God, under my breath, I wouldn't be caught dead in the same bar with 95% of you. 
And you see, and you people saved my life, and that's the way I looked at you. And I went back after the meeting to that hospital, and uh, I wanted, I didn't want to be there, and I hated you, and I hated them, and I didn't want to hear about anything from anybody. But you see, the alternative was 25 years in the state penitentiary, so I listened. If I hadn't had that penitentiary staring me in the face, I would have been gone. I wouldn't have been anywhere around there. And so I uh, went to my next meeting, and I had my moment of clarity around two weeks of sobriety. I don't know if anybody else has this kind of a moment of clarity or a spiritual experience, whatever you want to call it, but it was mine. And I went to a meeting, and Polly Pistol was the speaker. And they celebrated birthdays, just like they do in most meetings. And this 11-year-old boy came up to the podium... And he celebrated a year of sobriety. And I started crying. And Polly put her arms around me and she said, Honey, it's going to be okay. And guys, that's the first time in my life that I ever knew anything was ever going to be okay. Because nothing was okay in my life. It was a pile of crap all the time. And I don't know where these words came from. I think it's another God shot. But I said, Polly... What do I do to get sober? I hope there's some newcomers in this room. And if there are, I hope you can hear me. I doubt if you'll hear me, but I hope you can hear me. She said, Alan, you go to meetings every single day no matter what. You go early and you leave late and you sit up front and you hang out with the winners and you get involved in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and then you go help people. See, it was, I was taught in Alcoholics Anonymous that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous had absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with me. It had only to do with what I could do to help you, and I was raised that way from the get-go, because at five days of sobriety, I was whining and sniveling to Polly about my daughter, and she looked at me, and she said, Honey, I'm sick of your whining. She said, You see that guy over there? And I said, Yes. She said, He's got three days. Now go tell him how you've got two more days than he's got, and stop whining about yourself. And I got that education from the very beginning of my sobriety, and it has saved my life many, many times. Because you see, because of that kind of raising, I have never found it necessary to go back out and drink from the day that I walked through these doors. Never found it necessary. I wasn't raised to write about this and read about that and work on myself about this. I was raised to do nothing but go help people. And I kept it very simple, and I've never drank. I sponsor guys that are writing their lives away, and they're drunk all the time. Frank Honeycutt told me after I did a four-step, he said, don't ever let me catch you writing anything or working on yourself. He told me, he said, the sickest people in Alcoholics Anonymous are the ones that are writing about themselves and working on themselves. The only thing you need to do is go help another human being, and you'll be fine. I don't know why I listened to him, but I did, and thank God I did. And so I got out of that hospital 30 days later, and my ego had completely recovered. I mean, it was so big that I knew everything about everything about everything. And I ran, I ran, I had breakfast with some people this morning that invited my daughter and I to the breakfast table, and one of them knew about Bill and Frank Honeycutt. And the first person I ran into when I got out of that hospital was a guy by the name of Booger Red, and that was Bill Honeycutt. He died when I was eight months sober. And he said to me, he said, you conceded to your innermost self that you are an alcoholic and your life has become unmanageable. And you see, my ego had recovered. So I looked at him, I said, you know, pal, I might have drank too much, but I'm sober now. My life's manageable. He talked to Polly. He said, Alan, we don't get to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous at the age of 51, sleeping in a dumpster, headed to the penitentiary if our life is manageable. And you see, that man spoke to me in English. He knew I wouldn't understand AA rhetoric, but that I could still speak the English language. And he spoke to me in English. And I took step one right then. It went very easily, and it went well. And then he said to me, Alan, if you conceded to your innermost self that you are an alcoholic and your life's become unmanageable, 
you might want to come to believe that something outside of you might be able to manage your life since you can't. And that made sense to me. And I took the second step right then. And it went very well. And then he said to me, Alan, if you've taken both of those steps and you've actually really come to believe what you had to do once you conceded that your life was unmanageable, you might want to make a decision to let anybody other than you manage your life. <laughs> now, you got to remember, I was an atheist. So I wanted nothing to do with God. But I still didn't want to go to that penitentiary. And so I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of Alcoholics Anonymous and people just like you and this sponsor. And then I had a sponsor that was about six years sober. And the first thing he did was to send me home to do a fourth step. And you guys have got to understand that with a sixth grade education, I misunderstood thorough for lengthy. I wrote for three months. I wrote over a hundred pages. It was very thorough. There wasn't one word of truth in it, but it was very thorough. I brought that thing back to him in three months, and he took a look at it, and he didn't know much more than I knew. And he told me something about himself, and that was the end of my steps. That was the end of my steps. I didn't do anything else. Now, we've heard that God does for me what I can't do for myself. And what God did is he kept me sober for the next three years or so. And I never could have stayed sober by myself. With anything I was doing, I would have been drunk. And so God kept me sober, and I had nothing to do with it. But about three years of sobriety, or three and a half right in there, there was a friend of mine that was having a really big Halloween party. And it was a big party. And my daughter and I and a guy that I still sponsor today were going to this party. And they were getting their costumes on, and I was having some difficulty. So I said, listen, you guys go on over to the party, and I'll be over shortly. I'll get my costume on, and I'll meet you there. They went to the party. I grabbed a blanket out of the closet, curled up in a fetus position with that blanket around me and over my head, and stuck my thumb in my mouth. And I sucked on my thumb for the next four hours while they went to the party. And when my daughter got home, she pulled that blanket over my head. She said, Dad, it's okay to come out now. The party's over. I came out in a cold sweat. She said, you know, Dad, everybody there was asking about you. I said, what did you say to them? She said, they were all your friends. I said, what did you say to them? She said, I told your friends. My father was home having a panic attack, hiding under the blanket with Charlie Brown. <laughs> I said, how could you say something like that? She said, when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, you come on out and join the rest of us and have some fun. And with that, she pulled the blanket back over my head and went to bed. You see, her Aladon program was working very well right then, her Alatane program. And I pulled the blanket back over my head and stuck my thumb back in my mouth. And the next morning when I got up, I called Polly Pistol. I said, Polly... Help me, I don't know what to do. I'm going to two meetings a day. I'm secretary of a meeting. I'm treasurer of a meeting. I make coffee at a meeting. I clean up a meeting. I set up a meeting. I'm in H&I, I'm doing panels. I can't look anybody in the eye and my life is miserable. She said, Alan, go get near Frank Honeycutt and your life will get better. And I went up to Frank in the morning meeting. I said, Frank, Polly said, if I got near you, my life would get better. And he said, sit down. I sat down next to that man for 14 years. He taught me everything he knew. But the first thing he said, he said, Alan, there's a the SoCal convention in Bakersfield. Are you going to go? I said, no. I don't go to those things. He said, well, you're going to this one. And my daughter was very involved in SCAC at that one. And she asked me if I could get Polly to speak at the Alateen meeting for him. And I said, of course. And uh, when Frank told me I was going, I didn't know what to do. You've heard of kids and parents 
or they go to different places, the football games or the circus or whatever, and the parents go in front and the kid toddles along behind them. Well, my daughter went to this convention and I toddled along behind her. When she went back to the hotel room, I went back to the hotel room. I couldn't talk to you people. I didn't talk to you for three and a half years. I was too scared, too afraid to talk to you. So we would, why'd she go back and I'd go back? And, uh, I'd be hanging out with Honeycutt and her. And, uh, in, in the meantime, I had this other sponsor and he had some long-term sobriety. And I was talking to him at the same time. This all happened simultaneously. And, uh, and I told him, I said, see that brother of mine that bailed me out of jail and that got me to you people? The way I repaid that man was to badmouth him all over Alcox Anonymous to anybody that would listen to me. Any one of you that would listen to me, I badmouthed him. And I was telling Fred, I said, Fred, I just made another amends to my brother. And he said, Alan, I've been meaning to talk to you about your phony amends. He said, it's time you made a real amends to your brother. And then he stopped himself. He said, I don't want you making any more amends whatsoever. Why don't you try changing your behavior? I said, maybe I need to do a course step. He says, oh, well, you got to do what you got to do. And by this time, I'm getting a little more honest. And I'm sharing in the morning meeting that I go to every morning and still go to about what just happened with my brother and how I had to do a fourth step. And Frank Cunnicutt is a very wise man. Very wise. And he's an awesome man, the most loving man I know. He did more in Alcoholics Anonymous than anybody that I know. And about three days later, he said, Alan, how are you doing on your fourth step? I said, Frank, I'm working on it. He said, Alan, you better stop working on it, and you better start doing it. I said, okay, I'll do that. He said, how long do you think it'll take you to finish it? I said, I should be able to get the whole thing done in three or four days. He said, Alan, it sounds to me like you're having a problem with your fourth step. We're going to go to the coffee shop after the meeting. It takes exactly 30 minutes, and anything else is pure and adulterated BS. You see, that man taught me that doing the steps any other way than the way that Bill, Bob, and God did them is doing them by someone's opinion. And he said, we don't take people's lives in our hands based on our opinion." And he showed me exactly the way that Dr. Bob did the steps. He took you through all six of them, which encompassed all 12 in four hours, not four weeks or four days or four years, but four hours. And he explained to me that that fourth step was my inventory. It had nothing to do with you. He said, I'm not interested in what you were doing when you were two years old. He said, and neither are you. He said, I'm not interested in who you're angry at or who you're afraid of, or who you've hurt. This is not their inventory, it's your inventory. We're here to find out three things. One is if you're angry and why you're angry. Five or six resentments, with Frank right there doing the step with me, told me that I was angry, and they told me why I was angry. And five or six fears told me that I was running in fear, and they told me why I was running in fear. And five or six sexual misconducts, told me that I'd hurt a lot of people, and it told me why I'd hurt a lot of people. That took about 25 minutes. And then he said, those deep, deep, deep dark secrets you're going to take to the grave with you. And you see, I couldn't put any of those deep, dark secrets down, because, my God, what would you think of me? And I didn't give a darn about any one of you, but I was very concerned about what you thought of me. Today, what you think of me well, what I'm sharing with you is none of my business. My life, my very life depends upon my loving you and helping you, irregardless of what you think. So I had to put down that secret. That little girl you see sitting there that you heard share yesterday, I left her alone in an apartment in Las Vegas, Nevada, for seven, eight, or nine days at the age of eight years old with no money and no food. And I could not put that down or tell that to anybody. My God, what would you think of me? I was so concerned and so selfish and self-centered and thinking about myself, I didn't even care about her. 
And I certainly couldn't put that down on paper and cop to it. But you see, with Honeycutt right there doing the steps with me, see, Dr. Bob didn't leave anybody alone to do any step. Not any step. And with Honeycutt right there, we got that out. And we got a couple more deep, dark secrets out. You know, when I was raped, when I was eight years old, me and about ten, ten, five or ten, six, ten-year-old boys in the next year or so practiced homosexuality. And I couldn't put that down. And I am not homosexual, nor am I bisexual. I'm completely heterosexual. But I couldn't put that down either, because what would you think of me? Today, I share my deepest, darkest secrets from up here only for one reason. So that the poor guy back there that won't do his weaving with his sponsor will do it and understand we don't have to drink over it. Because you see, I was taught it's all about you and nothing to do with me. See, and that's what gives me the ability to do that. When I remember, it's got nothing to do with me. So I got those deep, dark secrets out. You've heard people say, you know, I did that fourth step. But I'm too afraid to take it to my sponsor and let him see it. Well, if your sponsor's doing the fourth step with you, the fifth step's already done and there's nothing to be afraid of. He's right there. No problem at all with the fifth step if he's right there doing the fourth step with you. And then it says, we spent some time alone deciding whether we'd done the first five proposals on us and whether we had any character defects. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't find any dictionary in any language in any country in this world where the word we means I. And I watch sponsor after sponsor sending people home alone to do that sixth step. Just like they send them home alone to do a fourth step. If you send me home alone to do a fourth step, then you're going to get the biggest pile of junk you've ever seen because I don't know what I'm doing. And if you send me home alone to do that sixth step, I've done the first five perfectly. And I don't have any character defects. Frank did not send me home alone to do anything. He decided whether I'd done the first five honestly. And see, he was right there when I was doing them. I had to do them honestly. And he pointed out every character defect I've got, and I've got every one of them. They're a quarter of an inch below the skin most of the time. And they don't come out most of the time, but my daughter's seen them come out. And some good friends of mine that I sponsor have seen them come out. And my sponsor has seen them come out. Because we don't get perfect in this program. But you see, there's a step to take care of that when they came out. It's called a tenth step. So we got through that sixth step together. The seventh step took 20 seconds. We got down on our hands and knees and we did the seventh step prayer. And that's how long the seventh step took. We take these steps and we make such a pile of complicated mess out of them that most a lot of people get drunk halfway through. They are not a complicated deal. They're a very, very simple deal. They're 12 tools that are given to me so freely for me to live my life by. Not to work on and talk about, but to live my life by. So we finished that seventh step. Now we got to the eighth step, and the eighth step became all about you. The eighth step had nothing to do with me. The eighth step's the one that became all about you. And I didn't understand the eighth step, so I said, Frank, I don't know who to put down on my eighth step. He said, Alan, everybody you know. Everybody you know. And then he taught me how to do a ninth step. He said, we're going to start with your brother. And the first thing you're going to do is you're going to drop the words, I'm sorry, I apologize, in my side of the street, out of your vocabulary. Number one, nobody's interested in hearing I'm sorry anymore at all. They've heard it way too many times in the whole street church. So I went to my brother and I did it exactly the way Honeycutt told me to do it. I said, Joe, I have been bad-mouthing you all over Alcoholics Anonymous to anybody that would listen to me. And I was absolutely wrong in doing that. Please tell me what you want me to do to straighten that mess out. I'll do my best never to do it again. And will you please forgive me? You see, Honeycutt taught me love and forgiveness. He said, I'm going to tell you exactly what you can do. Don't you ever call me again as long as you live. 
I went, went running back to Honeycutt as fast as I could get them. I said, it didn't work. He said, yes, it did. Now, you call your brother on Monday to have lunch. I said, what's the matter with you? He said, call him on Monday to have lunch. And I called him on Monday to have lunch, and he hung up on me. He said, call him next Monday. He hung up on me. Call him next Monday. Somebody answered the phone and said he's not here. I called him for a year and a half. He never came to the phone. He wanted nothing to do with me, and he meant it. We're down in Palm Desert at a convention that I go to every year. Probably one of my most favorite. It's a, not a convention. It's a roundup. There's only about three or 400 people there, and it's awesome. And I play golf down there, and I play in the golf tournament, and I love golf. I mean, I just love golf. And I'm down there, and i got a starting time, and I'm playing golf, and my sponsor says, Alan, why don't you call your brother and ask him if he'd like to come down here and play some golf with you on Saturday morning? I said, are you sick? He said, I said, call him. And I called him. I said, Joe, it's me. He said, I know who it is. I said, I'm playing golf tomorrow morning. I'm down here at a convention in the desert. I thought, maybe you'd like to come down and play tomorrow morning. He said, what time are you playing? I said, 8 o'clock. He said, I'll be there. And my brother came down and played golf with me and became my good friend. Thank God my sponsor's voice was louder than my head. Thank God he wanted more for me than I ever would have dreamed of settling for myself. And thank God I listened to him instead of listening to me. Because I became very sick shortly thereafter. And I needed a lot of financial help. I lost my right to work with disease. And my brother started helping me. And he bought me a car, a brand new car. And he insured that car. And I get angry at him sometimes because I don't think I'm getting enough. And I got all these excuses why he should be giving me more. And they're all bad excuses. But you see, if I hadn't done what my sponsor told me to do instead of what I thought I should do, I would never brother today. And I watch people I sponsor, the only time they take direction is when they agree with it. I watch a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous that the only time they take direction is when they agree with it. And if they don't agree with it, they don't take it. And I watch them drink again. And I watch them drink again. I have buried 43 people under the age of 35 that didn't need to take direction. They're dead today. They didn't need to take direction. They're dead. And everybody thinks it's going to be somebody else other than themselves. I know that it could very well be me at any given moment, and I don't want it to be. The next thing I had to do, I hadn't filed my taxes for 17 years. You see, rules were made for you, but not for me. I drove a car with no driver's license. You needed one, not me. I flew a plane with no pilot's license. You needed one, not me. She was in the plane with me with no pilot's license. Now that's what an ego. What a flagrant violation of rules. Of a, and of a right way to live. See, so I said, he said, now it's time to turn yourself into the IRS. I said, not me. I'm working and paying taxes. They've forgotten about me. Good. You want a drink? I said, no. He said, turn yourself in. So I turned myself into the Internal Revenue Service. And I should have gone to prison for 10 years. And, you know, and I didn't go to prison because their greed got to them. You see, they figure if I'm turning myself in and I haven't filed my taxes for 17 years, then I'm going to file my taxes and pay them. And they want the money. So they allowed me to file my taxes, which took away their right to put me in prison. The problem was they didn't know my intention of doing this was to not drink. I didn't have any money. I filed my taxes. Remember, I've been an apartment developer. I owed them eight and a half million dollars. And, you know, there's a statute of limitation on personal income tax. In case you don't know that and you got a problem, see me after I'm talking. I'll tell you all about how it works. Because they had to write off eight and a quarter million because of the statute of limitations, and they sent me a bill for a quarter of a million. I went running to my sponsor. I said, Frank, 
what am I going to do with this? He said, go make a deal with them. I said, I'm short 249,900. <laughs> Some of us don't get rich in sobriety. We get sober and we don't get rich. I'm one of them. So I went, he said, just go down and make a deal with them, Alan. And I went down to make a deal with the Internal Revenue Service. And they wouldn't make a deal with me because they thought I'd screwed them and bamboozled them and conned them into not putting me into prison. They didn't understand anything about Alcoholics Anonymous and understand that the reason I turned myself in was so that I wouldn't drink, period. And whether I went to prison or not was really irrelevant at that time. So they wouldn't make a deal with me. And that's caused me a lot of problems. Because you see, I had a kid to raise. Part, I had to file bankruptcy against the IRS. And part of filing bankruptcy against the IRS, when I filed it, I don't know exactly what the rules are today, but I'm pretty sure they're pretty much the same. You couldn't have any new assessments for the next three years, which means you couldn't work. And if I didn't work, she wouldn't eat. So I went to work under the table in telemarketing for a guy that had run my management company when I was an apartment developer. And he had a wife and a couple of kids, and he was a sober member of the community. He was not an alcoholic getting sober or anything else. Just a member of the community. And I became sober. And he got divorced and became a drunken druggie, and I didn't know that. And I'm doing telemarketing for him, and instead of shipping the product out, he's pocketing the money and buying drugs and booze. I get the FBI on the phone. My daughter called me at work. She said, Dad, the FBI called me. <laughs> the FBI told me, we want you off the phone right now, and don't you get on again, and we're going after you. You see, I became a convicted felon in sobriety for interstate wire fraud, for bilking little old ladies out of their money. That's the only thing that I'm innocent of in my entire life. <laughs> I should be in prison right now for 25 years for running hookers, dealing drugs, and throwing a police officer off a two-story balcony. I deserve to be in prison for 25 years. But drunk or sober, I never built anybody out of anything. But I couldn't fight that, because if I fought that, it would have unwound the bankruptcy. And that would have been much worse. So I became a convicted felon, and what that cost me was my right to work in my profession. I'm the grand sponsor of the top guy of Smith Barney in Southern California. And I had a job for a quarter of a million a year. And he couldn't hire me if I'd been the chairman of the board of Smith Barney's son. And my attorney, that got me out of going to prison for the interstate wire fraud. And I was the first person in the history of the United States to get out of going to prison on that kind of a deal. Because you see, Congress enacted sentencing guidelines on interstate wire fraud. And they were a point based on a point system where the judge had no right to change anything. Eight points was probation. Ten points was two years. Twelve points was five years. I had 16 points. And I got 36 letters from 36 of you drunks when I went to court in Utah. And the judge went against the statute of the law. And he went against the FBI. And he went against the U.S. Attorney. And he went against the probation department. And he gave me two years of probation. And he gave me 200 hours of unsupervised community service consisting of nothing but what those letters said I did in AA. And he wiped out the $10,000 fine. And he wiped out the $80,000 in restitution. And he believed that I was innocent. But I still became a convicted felon. And you know, we have to look at our part in the deal. And I couldn't find my part. I said, gee, if this guy had just not been a drunken druggie and shipped out those products, I'd be okay. You got to take it back further, Chuck Chamberlain says. So I took it back to, uh, well, if I just, uh, the government had just made a deal with me on my taxes, I would have been okay. And I had to take it back further. I went back to 1976. I said, if my brother and my wife hadn't filed their taxes and burned everything, I would have been okay. And I had to take it back two or three years earlier than that. And you're looking at the drunken slob that went into business with him and married her. And then I found my part in the deal. You see, I've got a big part in everything I do. And if I look back far enough, I'm going to find it. 
You see, some the deal was my fault again. One more time, it was a problem of my own making. And thank God my problems are of my own making because that gives me a chance to do something about them. If my problems were of your making, I'd be screwed. I wouldn't have a prayer, so thank God they're of my own making. Everything in my life is of my own making. And Alcox Anonymous teaches me how to change that. Alcox Anonymous is the single most important thing that I do on a daily basis. And then I do a 10th step every day, and like I shared with you, when I do something wrong, I share it in an open meeting and make that amends in an open meeting to the person I've done it to and in private with them. And I shared you for the reason for that was that it sets me free. It helps the guy that might be doing the same thing and it becomes a deterrent against my doing It's made my life awesome. There isn't anything I've done since the day I walked through the doors of Alcox and that you don't know about. I had a deal come up and business got bad in those days and I got convicted and I didn't know how to take care of me or my daughter. I used my daughter's credit cards. I didn't go out on some spree for $40,000 and run them up in a department store out in a bar somewhere. I used them to take care of me and some, mostly me and some of her, for five years. But it hurt her. And then she got that settlement from a, a, a bad injury as a lifeguard in Seal Beach where she jumped off Zero Tower and forgot the spoon, so she's off jumping off five stories and her foot hits the ocean floor and shatters. She got a bit nice settlement out of that, and that went to paying off the credit cards that I ran up. And then I started paying off some of them, and then I couldn't pay them off. She had to file bankruptcy over my fiasco. And that was her problem, was a direct result of what I did, not of what she did. I don't give her any, she assumes some responsibility for that. I don't give her any responsibility for that. She didn't know I got those credit cards. Because I was making the money and getting the credit cards in her name, and she didn't even know about it. So there's no responsibility on her part in that deal, like she shared. It's all mine. And I don't feel good about it. But you see, I've cleaned it up. And she's forgiven me, and you all know about it. So I don't have to live with it anymore. I don't have to live with the crap that I do, because it's all out in the open and cleaned up. And that's what a tenth step does for me, because you see, there comes a time in my life when I have no mental defense against picking up a drink unless my spiritual house is in order. I get my spiritual house in order when I get a solid connection with God. I get a solid connection with God in the 11th step. And if there's any dirt in between me and God, which I'm not cleaning up on the 10th step every day, I don't get any connection with God. Now, everybody gets their connection with God and uses the 11th step in different ways. Most people do it with prayer and meditation. I have a dear friend, Dave Pistol, that's Polly's husband, and he does it with prayer and camping out. And I do it with prayer and helping people. That's how I get my connection with God. And then we go out and do 12-step work. And I remember when I used to think I was doing 12-step work, handing some guy a dollar on the street and saying, you want to go to a detox? That's not 12-step work. Or buying him a hamburger, that's not 12-step work. That 16-year-old girl taught me what a 12-step call was when she was 16. I came home, we lived in Seal Beach, and she was going to Los Alamos High School, and there's this pile of filthy clothes outside the back door. She said, Dad, will you throw those in the garbage? And I did. And she had this filthy, drunken bum, just like me, off the street in my shower, showering with my soap and shampooing with my shampoo. And then he shaved himself with my razor, and she cut his hair off with my scissors. And she gave him three sets of my clothes. And then she fed him a big meal out of my food. And then she put him to bed on my couch. And in the morning when he woke up, she fed him a big breakfast. Then she gave him $40 of my money. I said, what are you doing? She said, did you forget which dumpster you came out of? And she gave him $40 of my money. And now that he had a good night's sleep and some clean clothes and a good meal and some money in his pocket, she said, you know, my dad's a drunken bum just like you. Now would you like to hear his story? And I told the guy my story. Three years ago, I saw him at a beach meeting. He was sober about 12 years. He was an engineer at Thornton. 
and I learned from a 16-year-old kid how you do a 12-step call, and it's not with your mouth. I learned that Alcoholics Anonymous is not done with your mouth. It's done with your feet. And I had a 16-year-old girl to help teach me that, along with my sponsor and Polly. And Polly's my sponsor today. You know? By the way, my sobriety date is May 10th, 1987. And my home group, my home group is the Seal Beach Speakers Group. And my sponsor is Polly Pistol. She's also got a last name. And today, you know, my life is awesome. I have so many friends, it's incredible. I was taught, there's a, there's a story in the second edition of the big book called The Professor and the Paradox. And I was taught that when you go to give, you get back tenfold, and when you go to get, you get nothing. And I was taught to give from the very beginning of my sobriety. It's a good thing I was taught that. I have guys that help pay my rent. I have guys, I've got 300 t-shirts, it depends on the t-shirt factory that he gave me. I get taken out to dinner all the time because I did all that stuff for the first 15 years of my sobriety. And now it's all coming back. Because the people like you that have compassion and love in their hearts look at what's happened to me and you're saving my life. That kind of life does not happen to people like me that did the things that I did in my lifetime. That's what we talk about when we say God forgives everybody. I believe from the bottom of my heart that every single human being alive is one of God's kids and God does not make any junk. And I believe from the bottom of my heart that every one of us is going to heaven and every one of us is forgiven for everything. Because if you're forgiven for doing the things that I did, I believe everybody's forgiven. Thank you very much for having me here and God bless you.